He said, go and read it. I went and read it. It says, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous, and a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You ain't leaving nothing to your grandchildren right now, and you're born again. You're just barely living up your retirement. You are useless. You, you, you failed God. Your grandkids have nothing from you that will last. They don't want your clothing. That's not inheritance. Now here you are singing, worshiping, and you disobey God. You're not leaving an inheritance to your children's children. And I said, God, what's wrong? He said, read it again. And I read it again. It says, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. And a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And I never saw it before until that day. God says, see? First of all, he says, who did I tell you have the wealth? I said, the wicked. He says, good. He says, how do you know that I know they have it? I said, I don't know. I was ashamed. He says, I gave it to them. He said, have you ever wondered why I gave it to them? Because I only give resources to those who can manage. Management is so serious to God that he'd rather give it to the wicked to protect it from you holy mismanagers. And do you know what we do? We lazy people, we try to claim it out of their hand. That's why we're broke. I claim. Claim what? You've been claiming for the last five years and you still broke. And the wicked still get it. Why? Because you don't get it by claiming. You get it by attracting it through management. Welcome everyone to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And I have a question for you. What if I told you there was information on 130 Chapter 12. and where their wealth is stored? I'll repeat. What if I told you there was information available to you right now of 130 billionaires and where their wealth is stored? Would you want to know that information? What if I told you I could show you where $32 trillion are currently stored right now? Would you care to know that information? What if I told you the majority of the wealth secrets that are available are completely legal? Would you want to know that information? What if I told you that some of the people who are using these legal methods may have done or may have received their money through ill means, some of them. And what if I told you the wealth that is currently stored up is sitting there for the righteous? Would that be you? On today's episode, we are on a one-year anniversary of the, the largest leak of financial information of our time, the Pandora Papers. And on this episode, we're going to look back one year ago at the hearing at the Committee on Ways and Means that they had talking about the largest leak of financial documents. And during this meeting, I am going to add my commentary and talk about the things that I'm noticing that you should be paying attention to when it comes to where the wealth is stored. Why does this matter? 
because if this is where the wealth is stored, that means they know how to manage it. And they're actually giving us the clues of how to manage wealth. No matter how they may have gotten the wealth, they're still managing it a certain type of way. And what if I told you, if we learn the full game, what was once stored up with the wicked will now be available for the righteous. I'm excited about today's episode because we may very well get to where the wealth is. I told you on season one about following the money, about really looking at where the money is. And I don't know anyone, I've looked, I don't know anyone who's going to show you where $32 trillion are sitting. So as you are listening to this episode, I would invite you to come over to Spotify because as we are going through this hearing about the Pandora Papers leak, I'm going to be searching up key terms and things that they're discussing on the other side of the screen. So then you can get a, a, a deeper understanding. I may talk about some of those things or I may leave them on the screen for you to read and look up later. You will want to watch this on Spotify so you can see the full effect of what we are discussing today. Now, the hearing is about to start in a few minutes here. Any moment now when the hearing begins, we are going to go straight into the meeting and we're going to listen in on what was the conversation a year ago? What was, what was going on? What were they dis, the, discussing? Or what was going on during the, the largest leak? And by the way, I looked everywhere on Black media. There's really one or two articles. By the way, over, I think it was over 100 media companies worked in tandem towards this documentation coming up through the International Consortium of Investigative and Jur Journalists, I didn't see much Black media present. Now, why would that matter? Well, if you know that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous, you would think that in order to close the racial wealth gap, we would want to know, well, where's the wealth? No, no, no. That, we're not in the conversation enough. And so we are revisiting the Pandora Papers because at the end of the day, we have to put ourselves in the frequency of where the wealth is stored. If we are not in the middle of it, then it's going to go to somebody else. The wealth of the wicked is stored for the righteous. Now, you can't spend all your time looking at who's good all the time. That's not where the wealth is stored. The wealth is stored with the wicked. Now, not everybody in this report did anything wrong. Some did. And we're going to uncover, well, what the heck happened? How did this information get out? And on the other side of the screen, I will be going through not only what they talk about in the hearing, but the actual Pandora Papers 
and the article that originally came out one year ago today. This is Black Equity Podcast, and we are revisiting the Pandora Papers. The hearing is about to begin. All right. So now as the uh, hearing is coming, we have up the website. Yes, we do. We have the, the website up. Hearing is about to begin in any moment here. All right. And you'll see here on the uh, investigative uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, we have pulled up the Pandora Papers. Let's see. And this is really great work by them, by the way. And not only is it the Pandora Papers, but also go back to the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. There's a lot of work that's been going on for the last 10 to 15 years on where the wealth is stored. And I would think if if you have a, a media company. Leader, are you ready? Oh, oh, it's starting. It's starting. Okay. Good afternoon and welcome. If you have a media company and you're talking about wealth and you're not telling us where $32 trillion are and you're just telling us only about the millions and millions, then something's not adding up. I call the order of the Subcommittee on Oversight. We'll be joined by a few more folks, and then there's some virtual. I thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We're holding this hearing in a hybrid format in compliance with the regulations for remote committee proceedings pursuant to House Resolution 8. So before we turn to today's important topic and our witnesses, and our members, I want to remind members of a few procedures to help you navigate this uh, hybrid format. First, consistent with the regulations, the committee will keep microphones muted, muted to limit background noise. I got to remember that myself. Members are responsible for unmuting themselves when they seek recognition or when recognized for their five minutes. Committee staff will mute members only in the event of inadvertent background noise. Second, when members are present in the proceeding via WebEx, they must have their cameras on. If you need to step away to attend another proceeding, please turn your camera and audio off rather than logging out of the platform. Finally, we will dispense with our practice of observing the Gibbons rule and instead go in order of seniority for questioning, alternating between the majority and the minority, beginning with members of the Oversight Subcommittee. I thank you all for your continued patience as we navigate these procedures to continue serving our country together in this great time of need. And with that, I will now turn to the important topic of today's hearing, the Pandora Papers and Hidden Wealth. So good morning to everybody. I consider this to be a very critical topic in an era when the Congress of Democrats and Republicans are trying to establish a fair tax system. It has been over two months since the so-called Pandora, Pandora Papers were released by the International Consortium 
of investigative journalists. The consortium reviewed nearly 12 million financial records containing information about the secret offshore holdings of 130 billionaires from 45 countries. I like that number. I want to say it again. 130 billionaires from 45 countries. This total includes hundreds of politicians and public officials in 91 countries. I mean, facts matter, as they say. This uh, blockbuster investigation vividly demonstrates how the ultra-wealthy and powerful live under a different set of rules than everyone else. And I am not satisfied with my own political party's efforts to bring fairness to the tax system. And this year's example of a bill we're voting for, Build Back Better, is a perfect example. Hear me. They're aided and abetted by a complex system of financial secrecy and accommodating laws that wealthy nations, including our own, created. They didn't fall out of the sky. And for all the reasons and greedy reasons they are, to protect these folks who are protecting and hiding their income from someone in the blue sky, I guess. That's why we're here. That the United States has become an international tax haven itself is a stunning indictment. It's an indictment of our laws, both at the federal and state level. Certain states have gone out of their way to craft laws to attract hidden wealth. And for my Democratic brothers and sisters, they're not all red. Get the picture? Bruce Springsteen sings in his rock anthem, Badlands, there is trouble in the heartland. <laughs> Took a guy from Asbury Park, New Jersey, I want you to know, Mr. Kelly. <laughs> Among the states that loom large is South Dakota. South Dakota is home to a stunning 81 of the 106 trusts located in the United States. We're not talking about the Cayman Islands. I said South Dakota. And if I didn't say it, Delaware. Not exactly a red state haven. The Mount Rushmore state is home to assets of $360 billion, an amount that has quadrupled in the past decade. To better understand why, the Oversight Committee invited the governor of South Dakota, our friend who was on this committee, Christy Nome, our governor, a former member of this committee, but she declined. That will not stop us from reviewing how and why the wealthy and powerful are hiding their assets in South Dakota and other states that have similar, similarly inviting trusts, asset protection, and banking secrecy laws. 
We will explore how these states in South Dakota have become the Grand Cayman of the Great Plains. We have an enormous responsibility to the hardworking families in this country. And most of the people on this committee, on both sides, come from areas of hardworking families to ensure that everyone, especially the wealthy and the powerful, pay their fair share of taxes and abide by all laws. Simple. On my street where I live in Patterson, New Jersey, if someone doesn't pay their property taxes, I got to pay more. So you see the similarity. Letting this accumulation of hidden wealth go unchecked will only exacerbate our two-tier tax system. I will not be complicit in further cementing a have and have not economy. That's not what the United States is all about to me or the one I learned about in school. For a long time, our country has rightly raised alarms on hidden bank accounts in Switzerland and Caribbean. It was a joke about Switzerland. Those assets are now being hidden right here within our borders. One need not go to Switzerland. <laughs> it's a nice place, but you don't have to go there to hide your money. We'll make it easier for you. We need to ask ourselves, do we want America to stand for fairness or be just another spot for rich folks to bury treasure? We will keep pushing till it's understood. The subcommittee has invited several expert witnesses to help us ferret out the facts about tax havens in our own country. I look forward to their thoughtful testimony. I hope we can utilize their expertise to craft solutions to this dangerous, I consider it very dangerous, tax haven phenomenon. But first, I want to yield five minutes to my friend, Mr. Kelly, a ranking Republican, for his opening remarks. Mr. Kelly, it is all yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks for hearing, having the hearing today. And also to our panelists, thanks for being here today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your lives to come here and testify. Now, due to a large database, uh, reporting from the Pandora Papers revealed that high-wealth foreign nationals have set up trust in the United States. This information has created concern among some about the possibility that foreign bad actors could be using trust here in the U.S. for money laundering purposes. Yet the group that published the Pandora Papers says that they do not intend to imply that anybody mentioned acted illegally. Now, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce this Reuters article that demonstrates the actions taken are not illegal for the record. So I'm left in a little bit of confusion about what exactly are we aiming at today? If we really wanted to explore the money laundering issues discussed in the Pandora Papers, we would hear from the administration and law enforcement about efforts to crack down on illicit finance. But perhaps that's not the goal. No one here supports foreign nationals laundering money in the United States. Let's just be very clear about that. But we also don't support conflating that issue with basic tax policy. I worry that the majority wants to go after trust in the U.S. generally through massive new reporting regimes and new regulations. But farmers, small businesses, and millions of average Americans use trust to plan for the future. An overzealous regulatory approach could significantly burden millions of law-abiding Americans seeking to plan for the future of their families. 
I was surprised that you asked the Joint Committee on Taxation to put together a summary document on the taxation on trust and estates since domestic taxation wasn't really a focus in the Pandora Papers reporting. Based on that and what I've seen from our witnesses, it seems that this hearing will be another example of the hypocrisy coming forth from the other side. On one hand, Democrats are pushing for massive tax cuts for millionaires through changes to the salt cap. While on the other hand, they claim to be going after the hidden wealth of foreign nationals. Tax the rich one day, cut taxes for the rich the next. It can be hard to keep up around here. One final point. I expect today we will hear about the supposed need for the government to collect extensive additional reporting from business entities across the country. Given the federal government's very recent track of failing to keep confidential information secure, that strikes me as a bad idea. Tax records for thousands of Americans held at the IRS were leaked to the media. It has been six months, yet we still have no answers. In 2020, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, had its own major leak to the press. And even the Pandora Papers arose from an unauthorized disclosure. Despite this record, Congress recently passed a law uh, requiring massive amounts of beneficial ownership reporting to FinCEN. Any entity, any entity with 20 or fewer employees has an additional reporting requirement. And I think you'll hear in our testimony today, Mr. Burton, thank you for putting a dollars and cents figure as to what the cost of this is. I would tell you, if it wasn't for a double standard in Washington, there'd be no standard at all. And we're supposed to rely on FinCEN to keep that target-rich database secure. All of this information was voluntarily submitted to the federal government. and supposed to be kept secret and supposed to be kept hidden, right? They have it. The IRS has it. They can look at it any time they want. It's not out there for, for publication. Six months, and we still haven't heard what happened in ProPublica. The faith, confidence, and trust that the American people have in this agency is being greatly damaged by the fact that we never get an answer on anything. I am tired of writing letters to agencies who never answer them. It's nice to get something back saying, thank you so much for writing us. We'll get back to you sometime in the future with no definition of what the future is. Now, I don't have any confidence in the ability of our government to keep this type of data secure. And the reason I don't is because of all the examples that we just stated. This is supposed to be private, voluntarily submitted, yet made public. And we still don't know who did it. We just don't know how this possibly could have happened. Now, I'm looking forward to hearing from our witnesses today, but I also urge all of us to be cautious about any new re uh, re reporting requirements and other regulations that may be proposed. I said this earlier, and I mean it. The American people are losing faith, confidence, and trust in this institution. And it's not some whimsical thing. It's based on what's taking place every day with voluntary information submitted to an agency that's supposed to be kept private. Unless it doesn't fit whatever purpose we have that day to make it public. And then say, I have no idea how this happened. If there's something wrong, could it possibly be in the code itself? None of these people, by the way, are accused of doing anything illegal. Nobody's talking about it being illegal. That's the thing that's amazing. We sit with a blind eye to what's taking place and paper that over and then bring up something like this. I just got to tell you, it's time for us to take a look in the mirror 
and say it's time for us to start being faithful, trustful, and being people that people have confidence in. So, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for having to say, for you panelists, thank you so much for taking time out of your lives to come here. We really appreciate it, and it's important to the American people here what it is that's most important. Thank you so much, and I yield back. So what we have here, you just heard from the opening statements, and this is Mr. Kelly speaking. So you have the first person who appeared to have called this meeting. Then you have Mr. Kelly saying, wait, why are we here? These people have done nothing illegal. This financial information has been leaked. And, at, you know, frankly, how could anyone after this trust our institution and our governments. Now, I will say, Mr. Kelly, I do understand where you're coming from and I actually think you raise a great point, but the information did get leaked. The information is out here. And I'm not sure if you should have had a hearing, but people from different walks of life who do not have this information should be looking into this saying, wow, so this is where the wealth is stored. This is what they're currently doing. Mr. Kelly has a point. They're just showing you that this is how you manage wealth. This whole leak document, the largest leak in financial information, as far as we know, is, is strictly telling you how to manage wealth. Now, who the people are, and the information that's coming out from it and all that, you know, now that could be up to interpretation. But what we've gathered so far is none of this is illegal. And if that's the case, if, if what they're saying is true, well then great, this information has been leaked. We need to look into it and figure out, well, how are they managing the wealth? And if they did get this money, from uh, sources that are not favorable, well, then that means it's stored up for the righteous. The only thing that's separating the righteous from getting access to this wealth is knowing how to manage it. And within this leaked documents, I believe they're gonna show us how to do it. Let's get back to the hearing. Thank you, Mr. Kelly. And that's exactly what we're doing, examining no one said that anyone committed anything illegal that I heard. I'm the only one that spoke before you. But I want to know why we can't find some of the people who have invested. We don't even know who they are. And the only way we can find it, whether one is providing his income tax, which is private, and business tax, which is private, but many times there are situations where we need to, the IRS has to investigate it. Whether it's under a Democratic administration or Republican administration. So I'm gonna introduce four witnesses and then turn to each of them for their testimony. Our first witness is Beverly Moran. She is a professor emerita at Vanderbilt Law School, great school and is joining us in person today. Thank you for being here. Our second witness is Danielle Hemmel. He is 
a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and is joining us virtually today. Thank you very much, Danielle. Our third witness is Ulrika Hanachuk. She is the Government Affairs Director at the FACT Coalition and is joining us in person today. And our final witness is David Burton. David, thank you for joining us. You are Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and you're joining us in person today. Each of your statements will be made part of the record in its entirety, and I would ask that you summarize your testimony in five minutes or less. So we hear everybody and we get all the questions. Just to help you with that time, please keep an eye on the clock in front of you. If you do go over your time, I will notify you with a little tap on the gavel. Professor Moran, you may begin. Thank you for the op Thank you for the opportunity. Can you not hear me? All right, can you hear me now? Okay, great. Thank you for the opportunity to address you today. My testimony is based on many years of work with local taxing authorities. My co-authors work in one of the classic tax havens of um, the 20th century, the Isle of Man, and the tax competition that we all witness between the states. We have two messages for you. The time is now, and all you can do is regulate. The time is now because tax havens are contagious. Once they enter, they spread. All you can do is regulate because destroying tax havens is nearly impossible. Strong taxpayer incentives lead to extreme pressures on governments to provide benefits. So what are the consequences of tax havens? Tax havens are attractive because they promise new revenue. Nevertheless, the money that flows to tax havens often comes from criminal activities. For example, the Washington Post identified nearly 30 U.S.-based trusts with assets tied to people or companies accused of fraud, bribery, or human rights abuses. Tax havens are sold as a solution, but they don't deliver on their promise. Forbes reports that South Dakota collected a mere 1.5 million in fees from trust companies last year out of a 2.2 billion state budget and over 300 billion in assets and trusts. In the meantime, other jurisdictions want their share. They convert to tax havens as well. Taxpayers use the competition to gain ever greater concessions. The race to the bottom is now in full swing. In the end, countries lose over $427 billion each year to tax evasion, more than enough to fund the recently passed infrastructure bill and Build Back Better combined. Thus, tax havens rob their citizens of revenues for schools, hospitals, and roads while they weaken sovereignty and the rule of law. How do tax havens work? Tax havens and the legal structures that support them involve. By the time a government figures out how to stop one, another has emerged. In the past, tax havens offered zero tax rates plus secrecy. 
Think of suitcases of cash arriving discreetly at a Swiss bank. That kind of tax haven is out of fashion today. International pressure has finally forced secrecy jurisdictions like Switzerland to grant access to account information. At the same time, tax competition is so fierce that many jurisdictions offer zero tax rates. These ubiquitous, ubiquitously low rates undergird the recent worldwide 15% minimum corporate tax that the United States Treasury championed this year. So what are the new tax havens? Tax havens are not mistakes. They are not discovered and then exploited by vigilant accountants. The tax haven industry creates havens and promotes them to governments on their clients' behalf. Tax havens are hard to combat because they constantly change. As governments push for greater transparency, tax havens preserve secrecy, either by creating new financial instruments or using old structures in new ways. In the United States, the instrument is the non-charitable purpose trust. For now, these trusts are available in Delaware, New Hampshire, South Dakota, and Wyoming. In the near future, you can expect them to spread across the nation. So what can be done? Tax havens don't just offer an escape from tax. They provide wealthy and powerful elites with secrecy and all manner of ways to shrug off the laws and duties that come with living in and obtaining benefits from society. Taxes, prudent financial regulation, criminal laws, inheritance rules, and many others. Offering these escape routes is the tax haven's core line of business. It is what they do. It is a place that seeks to attract money by offering politically stable facilities to help people or entities get round the rules, laws, and regulations of jurisdictions elsewhere. As one commentator declared after the release of the Panama Papers, so-called tax havens and their service providers are nothing short of enemies of humanity. The problem needs regulation that goes to the heart of tax competition between the states. Without that, new tax havens will constantly rise up. That is why we respectfully ask you to regulate tax havens with a sensitivity to eliminating competition between the states. Thank you. All right, so I just want to step in here real quick uh, and just give a few points that I'm noticing, not just from her testimony, but just different things I'm looking at as she's talking. For those who want to see my search and what I'm looking at as the hearing is going on, you want to tune in now to Spotify and watch the full episode on Spotify for the video. So a couple of things. Of course, you talked about the Isle of Man. So that's something that we should look into. Uh, she talked about non-charitable, make sure I got it right, non-charitable purpose trust. I did a quick search. And please consult with your advisors uh, for the accuracy of this. I'm just doing a, a quick Google search. And it says, how is a charitable trust taxed? Uh, now, this one's a non-charitable trust. So let me see. Non-charitable trust tax. As to tax, non-charitable purpose trusts are generally subject to the same tax system as traditional trusts. However, it is important to note that 
from a tax perspective, non-charitable purpose trusts have more in common with traditional irreparable trusts that, than charitable trusts. Well, the other one I looked at it, it showed that most uh, charitable trusts are exempt from taxes. So once again, get your advisors, do your own homework on it. Um, but she mentioned it as a tool that people use for tax havens, okay? So look into that and decide for yourself if that is something you wanna know more about. Let's uh, continue the hearing. Ms. Moran, and now uh, I wanna thank you. And Ms. Ha Mr. Hamill, you are now recognized for five minutes. Chairman Pascrell, Ranking Member Kelly, members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me. The U.S. is the world's leading investment destination for offshore wealth. Our laws enable foreigners through offshore intermediaries to invest anonymously in the U.S. and to grow their wealth tax-free. We are, in this respect, the world's ultimate tax haven. The Pandora Papers spotlight Panama, source of two million documents in that leak. But most offshore wealth booked in Panama won't stay there. According to the IMF, 51% of outbound portfolio investment from Panama pours into the U.S. We're also the number one destination for portfolio investment from other offshore financial centers, including the Cayman Islands, Ireland, Jersey, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. The U.S. never deliberately decided to become the world's ultimate tax haven. But whether we continue to play this part is very much within Congress's control. Lawmakers can either acquiesce to our tax haven status or catalyze change. Countries involved in offshore tax evasion fall into three groups. First are origin countries, where owners of offshore wealth reside. Second are intermediary countries, where wealth hides in bank accounts and trusts. Third are destination countries, where offshore wealth is ultimately invested in stocks, bonds, and other assets. The U.S. is occasionally an origin country, sometimes an intermediary country, and very often the destination country. Start with our origin country role. U.S. households own 30% of global wealth, but we account for only 7% of shell company shareholders identified in the Panama Papers and 3% of offshore wealth in secretive Swiss banks. We're doing a relatively good job of preventing offshore tax evasion by Americans. As for our intermediary status, a recent article in the Journal of Public Economics estimates that 7% of the world's offshore wealth is booked in the U.S., that still puts us behind Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore, the UK, Luxembourg, and the Cayman Islands. What makes us unique is our leading role as the investment destination for offshore wealth. Offshore wealth holders want to earn reliable returns, and we let them do it here tax-free. Since 1984, the U.S. has not taxed foreigners on portfolio interest, such as interest on corporate bonds. And while we still nominally impose a 30% withholding tax on dividends, we exempt stock buybacks. Buyback gains are taxable in a shareholder's home country. If the shareholder successfully hides her assets from home country authorities, she won't pay tax anywhere. In recent years, buybacks have replaced dividends as the primary channel through which large U.S. corporations return cash to shareholders. Of the 10 largest U.S. companies by market cap, five pay no dividend and four pay dividend yields below 1%. Foreigners can invest offshore wealth in those companies essentially tax-free. To illustrate, consider two companies, AT&T and Facebook, or now Meta. A foreigner who holds a million dollars of AT&T stock in an offshore account would pay $27,000 per year in U.S. tax. 
By contrast, a foreigner who holds a million dollars of Facebook stock offshore would pay zero. The reason is that AT&T returns cash to shareholders primarily through dividends, while Facebook returns cash to shareholders exclusively via buybacks. The offshore wealth that flows into the U.S. brings real benefits. It finances corporate investment, mortgage loans, and government debt, but these benefits pale next to the costs. First, our choice to exempt foreigners from U.S. tax on portfolio interest and buyback gains imposes a massive revenue cost on the federal fisc, hundreds of billions of dollars each decade. Second, by helping other countries' citizens evade taxes, we compromise our own national security and foreign policy interests. The global rule of law depends upon a network of capable national governments. We subvert other members of that network when we aid and abet tax evasion by their citizens. So what to do? First, we need to apply our withholding tax to buybacks or push U.S. corporations back to dividends. The excise tax on buybacks in the Build Back Better Act is a modest first step in the right direction. Second, we ought to reconsider the withholding tax exemption for portfolio interest. Especially if interest rates rise in the coming years, the revenue costs of this exemption will mount. Third, we need to work multilaterally with other countries that are home to strong and stable capital markets, especially Japan, the UK and EU, Canada, South Korea, and Australia. If these countries all agree to impose comprehensive withholding taxes, offshore wealth holders who want to earn reliable returns will no longer have the option to evade tax entirely. By contrast, trying to shut down every offshore intermediary will be a game of whack-a-mole because dozens of countries can play the intermediary role. We cannot rue the problem of offshore tax evasion without recognizing the United States' central part. Hopefully, this hearing and the legislative efforts that come of it will move us closer towards shedding our status as the world's ultimate tax haven. Thank you again for the opportunity to share these, these views. Uh for your statement, both first two statements are very concise. I hope everybody's listening. Now, Ms. Hanachak, you may begin. Chairman Pascrell, Ranking Member Kelly, all, thank you for this very important hearing. I'm here on behalf of the FACT Coalition and its more than 100 civil society, business, and labor members to discuss bipartisan reforms that will help mitigate tax dodging and improve U.S. tax compliance. In the wake of the Pandora Papers that exposed widespread corruption and tax evasion through U.S. financial instruments, this hearing could not be more timely. As I will describe, it is imperative that Congress fulfill its oversight and appropriations role to aid the administration in denying financial safe haven not only to tax evaders, but also to drug traffickers, human rights abusers, kleptocrats, terror financiers, and sanctions dodgers. The fact is simple. The U.S. has become one of the most secretive jurisdictions in the world. This undesirable status harms average Americans, undermines our national security, weakens democracy, and erodes our tax base and that of countries around the world. The Pandora Papers opened the world's eyes to the insidious effects of this secrecy. Political elites, criminals, and adversaries exploit offshore financial systems that are not offshore at all, but rather nurtured in the United States, in our own backyard. For instance, a sugar baron and vice president of Dominican Republic sought to evade new transparency measures enacted in the Bahamas, itself an historically opaque tax haven. Facing scrutiny of his offshore funds, he instead chose to move his assets to the sleepy tax haven of South Dakota. In another case, Colombian clothing magnate Jose Duer Ambar was implicated in laundering money for an infamous drug cartel. Discovered by U.S. investigators, he was forced to forfeit $20 million to the United States. 
but that pales in comparison to the $100 million he was believed to have tucked safely away in a trust in South Dakota. The Pandora Papers writ large have pointed the finger squarely at U.S. trusts as one of the most significant gaps in the U.S. regulatory regime, alongside other anonymous entities. These trusts create a major blind spot for law enforcement and tax authorities in ensuring compliance with the law. According to a 2019 analysis by Global Financial Integrity, more personal information is needed to obtain a library card in all 50 states than to establish a legal entity that can be used to facilitate tax evasion, fraud, money laundering, and corruption. A 2020 Treasury analysis based on IRS data found that legal entities were used in a, quote, substantial portion of cases to commit tax evasion and fraud. That's exactly why the Corporate Transparency Act is so important. Passed by Congress in January, this new bipartisan law will give officials new tools to enforce U.S. law, counter tax evasion and fraud, and support U.S. national security. The Corporate Transparency Act was enacted under the Trump administration and now has its first draft rule under the Biden administration. The act reasonably requires corporations, limited liability companies, and quote other similar entities to disclose their true natural owner to a secure directory housed and maintained at Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. The Corporate Transparency Act is the most significant update to U.S. anti-money laundering framework in 20 years. According to the Act, information is to be made accessible to authorized law enforcement officers, national security officials, the IRS, and federal functional regulators, as well as financial institutions like banks that have requirements to know their customer under applicable laws. As the new rule was just released yesterday, fact, the FACT Coalition is still digging through the 188-page uh, draft rule, but we can confidently say that the Treasury Department and FinCEN are to be commended for delivering a robust draft rule on the Corporate Transparency Act within the time frame identified by Congress. Two things have caught our attention and that will help authorities go after Pandora's notorious abusers. First, the draft rule denies a reporting company, excuse me, defines a reporting company broadly enough such that certain trusts not expressly exempt by the law, as well as other notoriously opaque entities, will be required to report their beneficial owners. Second, the draft rule requires new and existing entities to report information in a truly timely fashion, equaling or surpassing international standards on beneficial ownership disclosure. The draft rule likewise demonstrates FinCEN's efforts to partner with legitimate businesses to ensure a directory provides useful information for law enforcement and keeps the cost of compliances for business low. Treasury officials this week pledged costs on average of $50 per company. Steps like verifying the data as it is entered into the, into the directory, for instance, pinging driver's license numbers often often existing government database, would further keep compliance costs low and data quality high. On the next rulemaking, Congress should reiterate that authorized law enforcement and IRS officials should have timely and uncomplicated access to the directory. Congress should also note that there are certain trusts and other entities exempted from the Corporate Transparency Act uh, and subsequent draft rule that may still pose tax evasion and other risks. Congress should examine these exemptions and consider if they warrant further legislative action. Finally, FinCEN will need additional resources and staff to finalize a rulemaking and stand up a database that meets modern standards in security and data quality. Congress should appropriate additional funds so that FinCEN can meet the 21st century financial threats that our country faces. Uh, in conclusion, despite the strong rule, Congress still has an important role to play over the next year in ensuring that the U.S. financial system is not a vehicle for illicit finance. And this subcommittee hearing is an excellent first step. We can discuss more ideas uh, for Congress to, to carry out during the question and answer. I welcome your questions. And now we're going to turn to our 
Final witness, Mr. Burton, you are now recognized for five minutes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Ranking Member Kelly, and members of the subcommittee for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, financial and personal privacy is a key component of life in a free society. A high degree of privacy for both individuals and groups and limits on both disclosure and surveillance are the foundation of a liberal democratic society. In contrast, in an authoritarian or totalitarian state, the regime relies on secrecy for itself, but all other groups are subject to surveillance and mandatory disclosure. The U.S. financial regulatory framework is increasingly inconsistent with these ideas. We should be under no illusion whether personal and financial privacy are inextricably linked. A government, or a private organization for that matter, that knows everything about our financial life will know virtually everything about our private life, including our business, political, social, and religious associations and inclinations, what we buy, what we own, where we travel, and more. Ever-increasing surveillance and mandatory reporting endanger the freedom of the American people. And the recent controversy over the Biden administration's proposed bank account surveillance program demonstrates that the American people still care about financial privacy. The current regulatory regime is overly complex and burdensome, and its ad hoc nature has likely impeded efforts to combat terrorism, enforce laws, and collect taxes. Furthermore, the inability of the IRS, FinCEN, OPM, the SEC, and other federal agencies to protect the private data in their hands should give Congress pause about creating larger, more lucrative databases for hackers to target. There's also a largely ignored problem in this area involving various international treaties and tax information exchange agreements that I discuss in my written statement in greater detail. The Corporate Transparency Act was enacted in January as part of the NDAA. It will impose a large compliance burden, over $1 billion annually, on approximately 11 million small businesses with 20 or fewer employees or less than $5 million in gross receipts. Those uh, institutions most able to abuse the financial system are, however, exempt. Assuming a 90% compliance rate, the CTA is likely to create over 1 million inadvertent felons out of ordinary small business people throughout the country. <clears throat> the uh, bottom line is the CTA is, is going to be a massive burden on small businesses, uh, but it's misdirected. The problems in this country are not the dry cleaners, the retailers, and, and the restaurateurs on Main Street. Yet that's whom the CTA burdens. It's a remarkably poorly drafted piece of legislation rife with ambiguities and inapt provisions. FinCEN's proposed rules yesterday do little to address the problem. An example would be they create the oxymoronic term a dominant minority without defining what that is. And they define substantial control with a phrase like, quote, direction, determination, or decision of, or substantial influence over important matters affecting the reporting company without bothering to define what is substantial influence or what's an important matter. Now, your local dry cleaners, restaurateurs, and retailers are being forced to deal with this on pain of criminal sanction. Perhaps the FAT Coalition, FENCEN, or members of this committee could work to improve these definitions so small business owners aren't having to make these decisions. There's a long, long list of problems with it, but I'll move on. The uh, regulatory costs do not increase linearly with size, so heavy regulation uh, courts a competitive advantage to large firms. 
the number of broker-dealers in this country have declined by 30 percent over the past 15 years. We lose about two to 300 broker-dealers each year, and they're usually the smallest ones, the ones that help entrepreneurs in uh, smaller communities raise capital. Out of the 5,001 insured depository institutions in the United States, the largest 10 account for nearly half of the deposits. This degree of concentration is largely driven by regulation, and it needs to, needs to stop. I suppose the last thing I'd like to address in my oral remarks was a question of trust. There's a, a, a newfound war on trusts, evidently. Trusts are a massive problem. But in point of fact, most small businesses, farms, and ranchers have trusts, or at least a very substantial portion of them, for purposes of succession planning, spendthrift provisions to keep their children from wasting their inheritance, incapacity planning, avoiding expensive probate provisions, and having a more accelerated estate settlement plan. So there's a lot of reasons to do it. If you're worried about the generation skipping taxes, one of uh, my co-panelists is, the simple expedience is to amend the general generation skipping tax so that the trust provisions are disregarded for purposes of the GST. This was proposed by the Joint Committee staff as many as 15 years ago. Thank you very much. Sure you, before we get into questions, that we do not want to hamper legitimate businesses. First, we're going to find out if they're legitimate. We don't know that beforehand. All right, so we'll, we'll jump in right here. A uh, couple things that stand out from the last few speakers. Uh, when they were talking about the stock market, they talked about buybacks and how buybacks are potentially uh, contributing to uh, people paying less taxes. So something that someone could pull from that is, well, if I was an investor and I was looking to do this, would I not focus on stocks that have buybacks until something is done about it? Now, I do think there was a recent, uh, I think Biden put some type of, uh, some type of tax on buybacks recently. So, of course, you know, consult your advisors. What are stock buybacks? I thought he did something with this. Yeah, there's a new 1%. This is as of last month or August 19th. Uh, new 1% excess tax on stock buybacks. So, you know, it, it's, they're making moves now because of what happened a year ago. And so as we are having this episode, we've had a full year of the different things that have transpired because of hearings like this and, of course, the actual leak itself. Um, okay, so the the buybacks was a big thing to look into. Also, there's a lot of conversations about trust and the companies that form trust and how they're used. If those who are watching on Spotify, they'll see that I pulled up Trident Trust. They're located in South Dakota. Um, and by the way, before you even get access to this information, they ask you on the website uh, with uh, ICIJ, they, they ask you to sign a disclaimer or, or notification saying, hey, you know, the services 
that are provided here do not uh, mean that anyone did anything illegal or did anything wrong, right? And that should be a huge red flag or actually a green flag. Okay, so none of this is illegal. Now, I told you in the beginning of this episode, do you want to know where 130 billionaires are hiding their wealth or placing their wealth? Do you want to know where there's up to potentially $32 trillion? Do you want to know where most of this is legal? I'm showing it to you. Okay. There is a full document here where we can look at the 14 different offshore firms where you're able to see where the up to $32 trillion. Trident is saying they have over, what, $40 billion, I believe it said. Let's pull it back up. And we'll get back to the hearing in just a minute here. We'll pull it back up in a second. But they, I think they said they had over... Oh, here it is. They have over $50 billion under administration. That's just one company. They got $50 billion and there's 14 offshore firms. Now, you take 14 firms and they all have whatever it is they have under, uh, under administration, and you can start seeing how we're getting closer and closer to the trillion dollar mark. Okay, let's get back to the hearing. And, oh, something I, I noticed from earlier, I wanted to say this. Real wealth is not visible. You see how everybody's hiding and, and, and placing it in secrecy and privacy, and you don't know where it is. If this leak doesn't come out, we wouldn't know any of this. Unless you know people who, who have access to it, and they share with you what to do. It's hidden in plain sight in the middle of South Dakota and all these other locations. Bahamas, British Virgin Islands, Canada, Switzerland, Singapore, New York. That's where Trident Trust. They have, oh, there it is, Isle of Man. Remember we talked about that earlier. Mauritius. There's a reason why you don't necessarily know about this in the public eye. Why am I saying this to you? Anyone who is pushing out information, content, and they're talking about money and how much money they made and how they went from this amount to $2 million or how I got $10 million or how I did that, those types of conversations, oh, man. I was thinking about this earlier today. In many ways, those are kind of tacky and very uh, flashy. And you can tell it's like new money, right? When you get new money, you start going around saying millions and millions and millions, right? It's just tacky. The professional way to do it is to shh, be quiet. And that's what people are doing here. Now, they're having this hearing saying, well, how dare this information get leaked or what's going on? How do the people got all this money, right? Look, I can't, I can't tell you how it got leaked. But what I can tell you is, actually, I can. God, God told us that the the sinner, the the wealth of the sinner, is stored up or laid up for the righteous. I'm not saying that anybody that has been named yet is a sinner, 
but they're showing you where the wealth is managed. Instead of focusing on how they got the money, focus on how they're managing it through these companies. And so as this hearing continues, as the hearing continues, I'm going to be looking at the other 14 firms. And you can look at them too and decide, well, which firm will I want to work with if I want to work with them at all? What services do I need? We have to get into a position of managing the wealth. Everybody's talking about hustling and getting the money and all this other stuff. There's a new era in the Black wealth movement. And it begins with this conversation, with this hearing, with this episode. If we are not managing that wealth, what are we doing? And I, I was shocked to hear uh, Ms. Hanischek talk about what you need to get a library card in many of these states compared to what you need to do not <laughs> when you're investing and, and putting a deposit into some bank or financial institution, and we don't even know who the heck it is. I mean, that's questionable. But we're going to go to the questions period right now. And I'm going to open a hearing for questions. Without objection, each member will be recognized for five minutes to question our witnesses. If the witnesses will respond with short and concise answers, all members should be able to ask questions. As mentioned earlier, we will not observe the Gibbons rule in this hybrid setting and will instead go in order of seniority for questioning alternating between the majority and the minority, beginning with the members of the Oversight Subcommittee. Members are reminded to unmute their yourselves when you are recognized for your five minutes. I'm going to begin by asking my questions. Professor Moran, thank you for your testimony. You say that tax havens will never be eliminated. And the Pandora Papers show how state laws, for instance, uh, we mentioned some of the states, contribute greatly to the creation of tax havens in the U.S. When you use the word haven, people are going to think about what we've been talking about for a couple of decades, like the Cayman Islands, other places like Ireland, a lot of places where U.S business people and non-business people put their money so they have to pay taxes in the United States. You following me? Yes, sir. Good. What is the best first step for us to take at the federal level to try to rein in this dangerous domestic tax haven phenomenon, even if we can't eliminate it? The most important way to eliminate tax, tax havens is to trace beneficial ownership. This is why these um, non-charitable um, special purpose trusts are so attractive to people, because 
not only do they make it difficult to trace beneficial ownership, they actually don't have beneficial ownership. So it becomes almost impossible to trace it. If you don't know who owns what, it becomes very difficult to prevent a tax haven. I saw a graph about what you're talking about. But why would somebody not want anybody to know that they're the owner of this money? Why would you use someone else in your place? What, what are you hiding? Well, there are at least two different reasons. One would be a tax reason. So, for example, as Professor Hemmel was, was discussing, the way that um, domestic and foreign trusts are defined in the Internal Revenue Code, you can have a trust that's created in South Dakota that benefits a U.S. citizen in Colorado, but if the uh, um, so supposed owner of the trust is um, a foreign national, then it's um, possible for monies to go to the foreign national who's not taxed, and then that foreign national to gift back to the American. So um, hiding who owns what or having people who are not the true owners set up as the owners can have tax advantages. Beyond that, which is really disturbing, is that you can hide illegal funds, you can hide funds associated with human rights abuses, you can hide all sorts of other um, things that you might not want people to know. So it's not just about hiding the money, but hiding the activity behind the money or hiding the person who owns the true beneficial. Thank you, Professor Moran. Professor Hemmel, uh, I wanted to thank you for your very thoughtful insights. I read them very carefully into this investigation. In your testimony, you suggest that the U.S. needs to work multilaterally. We're talking about international money now. With, with other countries with large and liquid uh, capital, those markets, uh, to, al to align our anti evasion efforts using the recent uh, OECD uh, corporate tax agreement as an example. So would the two tax changes you mentioned, discouraging stock buybacks and imposing withholding tax on portfolio, on portfolio interest, have to be adopted by our OECD partners in your estimation? I think they would be effective even if not adopted by our OECD partners, uh, but would be more effective if they were adopted. Uh, so first on the buybacks issue, buybacks aren't an entirely an American phenomenon, but they're primarily an American phenomenon. Uh, and other countries, uh, their corporations primarily return cash to shareholders via dividends. And most of those countries do impose withholding tax on dividends. So this is one way in which we're providing a uh, almost unique advantage relative to other countries. Uh, as for portfolio interest, 
Um, there are other OECD countries that are already taxing uh, portfolio interest. Uh, even the UK uh, taxes some. Um, but there are only a small number of large and liquid capital markets in which uh, the trillions of dollars of offshore wealth could be absorbed. So we're really talking about uh, six to 12 countries really needing to be on board for this to be an effective regime. Whereas if we're going after offshore intermediaries, then there are dozens of countries that we would need to sign on board. Mr. Kelly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so I want to start with the federal government's failure to address massive leaks of confidential information. I just want to be clear, everything that you're all talking about today, this is voluntarily submitted information, data, that has been breached. And so when we look at what it is we're talking about today, you know, private taxpayer information of thousands of Americans was leaked to a media outlet in June. And this committee has yet to hold a hearing on that. We have yet to receive answers on how this massive criminal leak happened. And just last week, Secretary Yellen testified before the Senate that the investigation was still ongoing and that it was premature to have answers. Well, I'll tell you what, I guess in the government it's premature, but in the private sector, that's a lifetime. They don't give you that kind of time to collect information to get back to them from a government entity. Now, meanwhile, taxpayer information continues to get published. Now, we need answers on this issue, and we need to get them now. Mr. Chairman, I have a letter from Senate Finance Committee members to the IRS Commissioner uh, Reddick asking key questions about ProPublica data leaks that I would like to introduce for the record without objection. Also, a letter from the NFIB uh, talking specifically to today and the potential burdens on small business owners of any new regulations and reporting requirements that Congress may propose in response to the Pandora Papers. I got to tell you, because I'm from the private sector, and you have, to label, you have to lawyer up for all these things that happen, and then, you know, all of a sudden, the meter starts running. So we think we're protecting people. We can put people out of business real quickly, and we have the ability to do that. And quite honestly, I think we ought to take a look at the way we run our business before we start pointing fingers at private individuals. Uh, instead of focusing on the data leaks, we're having a hearing today on an issue that was only brought to light due to another data leak. In this case, it was the breach of government database in another country that was supposed to be confidential. So much for the word confidential. At the same time, our government is in the process of establishing a similar database from the leak of the IRS data this year to FinCEN leak of thousands of suspicious activity reports in recent years to the massive data breach at the Office of Personnel Management back in 2015. Federal data security is a huge problem. Mr. Burton, whether it's tax returns or details about a small business, in your view, what do these repeated leaks do to the American people's trust confidence and faith in the government's ability to keep their information secure. It's all voluntarily submitted. Is that not correct? You and I may have a little different definition of voluntary. Generally, it's been submitted because it's required by the federal government that it be submitted. I mean, it's, it's been submitted in compliance with law or regulations imposed by FinCEN or the IRS or whatever. Okay. But the, the bottom line is I think the American people are beginning to lose faith that the federal government can protect data because it's been more or less established that they cannot. The, I suppose we've heard a lot about international cooperation. Right now before the Senate is a treaty called the Multilateral Convention on Mutual Administrative and Tax Matters. Sounds very boring. And then a follow-on competent authority agreement is likely to be before the Senate. That would require the U.S. government to collect information from banks, insurance companies, and uh, uh, 
uh, brokerage firms, investment banks, and share it with virtually every government on the planet, including the Chinese, the Russians, various corrupt developing countries, and developing countries that have much more lax data security requirements than the United States. And that's been supported by several administrations, and I can't imagine what would ever go wrong in such a context. It's, uh, it's likely that we would end up having data leaks, uh, but we'll also be sharing data with countries that are fundamentally hostile to the United States. So we asked people to supply this data. That's when it comes voluntarily, right? This wasn't the result of somebody at a government entity going out and doing an investigation and collecting data that they didn't have access to, and they were somehow able to uncover it. No, it's function. SARS are mandatory under the Bank Secrecy Acts, and then a lot of it is also in tax data, 1099s, tax return data, things of that sort. And, of course, the OPM is typically employees uh, that are working for the federal government, the SEC leak, uh, generally related to, as I recall, uh, it was inform in information was valued with people who are doing insider trading based on likely SEC enforcement actions, that sort of thing. I mean, virtually every federal agency has had some massive federal uh, data leak. So there's really the things that taxpayers or people who are making these investments are being asked to to comply with yes. are never secure. Pardon me? They're never secure. We take this information and tell people, hey, don't worry, this isn't going to be made public unless it gets made public by somebody leaking something, and sometime in the future we'll find out who leaked it and why they leaked it and continue to erode people's faith. So the old saying, I'm from the government, then I'm here, and I'm here to help you, really stands, stands true to the test. It sure does. So uh, with that, uh, first of all, thank you all for being here. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. I yield back. Mr. Kelly, and now we're going to turn to Ms. Chu for five minutes. Ms. Chu. Uh, Ms. Hanacek, uh, it's astounding to me that the United States is now ranked second globally for its lack of financial transparency just, be just behind the Cayman Islands. The Pandora Papers account for nearly 12 million documents proving how famous and powerful people have established complex networks of companies set up across the world to evade taxation. And it sadly proves just how involved the U.S. is in this network. Um, high wealth individuals, both domestic and foreign, can easily evade taxes by moving money into American shell companies with little or no oversight or accountability. accountability. So. Looking forward to the impending implementation of the um, Corporate Transparency Act, how could the information on beneficial ownership that FinCEN collects be used by the Internal Revenue Service to better enforce our tax laws? Will FinCEN proactively share that information or would the IRS need to request that information on a case-by-case -case basis? Thank you very much, Congresswoman, for the question, and it's an important topic. Uh, let me start by mentioning just how critical this information is in tax enforcement and for tax administration purposes, which are two purposes under which the IRS is allowed to use this information according to the statute. Uh, let me point to a case uh, from... I want to step in here. For those watching on Spotify, you can see me going through uh, the offshore firms that have been listed. If I were you, 
I would go through all of them and see if any of them uh, pique your interest. And I would follow them and I would try to connect with them and learn what their services are, especially uh, depending on what country you are. I know we're uh, international, so uh, it all depends on where you're located. Uh, but I would uh, look into them. As I'm listening to the hearing, they're telling me that uh, this is how this is how wealthy individuals operate. Now the leak just happened to have some people in it that uh, some would call questionable, right? But that doesn't mean that everybody who's doing this is questionable. They're just using the same methods. It's almost like it's almost like a, it's a tool, right? I may own a gun and then this person may own a gun, but just because I own a gun doesn't mean I'm going around and doing mass shootings, but then they may do mass shootings. The gun wasn't the issue. It was the person who holding the gun. Now, I'm not trying to get into a gun debate here. I'm just trying to give an analogy. There is a system of wealth management out there that is not previewed to everyday people. Now, there are wealth management companies in your own local area, and I'm not saying anything is wrong with those. I'm just saying they aren't these. These are where the super uber wealthy reside. And I'm showing them to you as the hearing is going on. So you want to make sure you're tuned in to Spotify. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and watch what we are showing you. I can't tell you everything uh, because we're listening to the hearing, but I am showing you as they are talking what is going on. Let's get back to the hearing. 2016, I believe, in which a, uh, an attorney from Boca Raton evaded $1.5 million in taxes via anonymous shell companies. And likewise, uh, there's another instance in which a family with an interest in a, lumber, uh, in a lumber business, majority interest, uh, evaded nearly $200 million uh, via anonymous corporate structures and complex networks of, uh, of anonymous shell companies. So for these reasons, it's critical that IRS, the IRS has access to the database. Um, the statute allows the IRS to have preferential access to this database to use it for tax enforcement and tax administrative pur purposes. Uh, and likewise, uh, it is really crucial that the information in the database is constructed such that it's useful for the uh, IRS as it conducts its investigations. One way that FinCED can consider doing this as it enters the next step of the rulemaking, uh, looking at access and database construction, would be make to be make would be to make sure uh, that uh, law enforcement officers, national security officials, and the IRS are able to identify connections between uh, various corporate uh, ownership structures uh, and be able to say, you know, if Erica Hanacek owns a company, uh, to be able to make those types of connections to, to other entities that I would own. So this would be really critical from a tax enforcement perspective. Thank you. But would it have to, have to be done on a case-by-case -case basis, or can there be proactive the sharing of information. I appreciate the follow-up. Uh, it would not have to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, it would be, uh, since the IRS is a part of the, the Treasury Department, uh, it would be able to have access to the database as is. Thanks. Um, so, Ms. Hamchick, the Build Back Better Act, which the House passed last month, invests 80 
billion dollars in the IRS to rebuild the agency and increase enforcement and help the IRS better identify and catch tax evaders. Even with this historic investment, does Congress need to make additional changes to the Corporate Transparency Act to ensure that FinCEN is sharing this information with the IRS so that the IRS can better target those shell companies when they're being used to evade taxes? Thank you for the question. Uh, first of all, let me just say that increased IRS resources, uh, as included, uh, as contemplated rather under Build Back Better, uh, are critically important to make sure that the IRS is able to have the resources and technical training necessary to understand the complex webs of anonymous ownership structures and legal entities that are often relied on for tax evasion and fraud purposes. Uh, additionally. Uh, there are uh, some considerations that need to be uh, taken into account as uh, the financial crimes enforcement approaches the next rulemaking on the database construction and access. Uh, there are uh, there are concerns uh, that the. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network may include specific procedures not required by law um, that would make it, uh, IRS access less timely and more complicated. Uh, it would be really important for uh, the administration to hear from this committee about why it's important for uh, the Treasury Department, uh, for the IRS specifically, to be able to have uncomplicated access uh, to the information in the directory. Thanks. Um, so are there some changes that are needed? There are no legislative fix required to make sure that Treasury uh, gets access to this database. It really is just a matter of how it comes down to the implementation. So I really hope that Congress can partner with the administration to make sure that this information is highly useful. Thank you. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Uh, I'm going to call on in a second uh, Ms. Walarski for five minutes, but can I say one thing, please? Would you yield for me? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote a letter. You brought the subject up of ProPublica. I wrote a letter, when was this? In June, yeah, in June, to the IRS uh, asking them the very question you just asked, and I have not received an answer from my question. I want you to know that. And that's part of what we're talking about. In an age where we're trying to simply get transparency so we know what the heck we're dealing with. So we don't make wild accusations, yet at the same time, in order for us to make judgments, we've got to know some facts without invading privacy. And I think we can do that. We've done it in other areas. We, even, we have even done it with personal income taxes. So we could do this. But here's an example. Five months later, I don't have an answer. The question, and that burns me. It doesn't matter who the majority is, by the way. We wind up with no answer, but <laughs> just wanted to bring that to your attention. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Mr. Will Ms. Wolarski, how are you? Good. Good to see you, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We've been having, in the midst of these discussions about this tax gap in the middle of what we're talking about this morning, I do want to address one issue related to an over-the-top estimate made by the Treasury Department. First, I want to note that Republicans on this committee have introduced a bill, H.R. 5206, that would establish a more reliable and timely process for estimating the tax gap, which would provide Congress then with reliable information as we consider policy options. In a purely political effort, 
Treasury put forth a very large tax gap estimate that goes far beyond the official IRS estimate. Treasury claimed in one example that $160 billion is lost annually through taxes owed but not paid by the wealthiest 1% of taxpayers. This number was striking and received significant press attention when it came out. We were concerned by this number, began digging into the analysis to understand where exactly is the Treasury Department on this and where are they getting these numbers from. Staff from the Joint Committee on Taxation also expressed skepticism at the time at the number and identified a potential potential methodological flaw in the analysis leading to the number. Professor Hemmel, do you agree with this Treasury estimate analysis and claim the 1% to fail to pay the $160 billion each year, or would you agree with the Joint Committee on Taxation that the methodology used to reach that number is potentially flawed? Thanks for the question. I think that there's certainly significant underreporting by the top 1%. I don't think the $160 billion number uh, is, is evidence-backed. Um, the, the statistical issue uh, that folks are arguing about here uh, is pretty technical, um, but much of the tax gap is really a statistical imputation. Uh, it's uh, underreporting that we assume is there, but we don't see. Uh, and the assumption is for every dollar that we see, uh, there are $2 uh, underreported that aren't seen. Um, and there's a question how to allocate uh, those uh, dollars that we assume are there uh, but don't see in these random audits. The $160 billion uh, figure comes from the decision to allocate all, uh, to allocate underreporting to the same returns uh, on which the random audit showed up underreporting. Uh, and this uh, has the effect of uh, magnifying underreporting by a relatively small number of taxpayers uh, and also increasing their income. So the top 1% ends up being uh, stocked with people who are only in the top 1% as a result of this uh, statistical imputation. Uh, the particular source that Treasury cited uh, for that estimate was a tax notes article by Jason DeBacker and co-authors that actually used that uh, as an illustration of what not to do. Um, so I think there are clearly tens of billions of dollars uh, underreported by the top 1%, uh, but I don't think the $160 billion number is right. Thank you. You know, I think narrowing the tax gap has been uh, something that we've all talked about. And, you know, we're still looking. We still don't have an unbiased, reliable, and timely tax gap estimate that Congress can rely on as we actually evaluate policy choices. So that's why I think H.R. 5206 is so important. And then, um, if I may, when it comes to the use of trusts for tax planning, it's interesting that many people seeking to move assets into a trust in a low-tax state come from very high-state, Democrat-run states. In those high-tax states, residents have been able to vote for expensive government services while at the same time being able to legally avoid paying federal taxes. Thankfully, we changed that in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It's odd to me that Democrats on this committee would focus on alleged tax shelters or tax havens in low-tax states while simultaneously scheming to modify the SALT cap to bring back a legal tax shelter for the residents of high-tax states. 
Democrats are working hard right now to provide so-called salt relief to blue state millionaires that will allow the absolute highest earning Americans to avoid paying federal tax they otherwise would owe. And I think that irony is incredible. Mr. Burton, isn't so-called salt relief essentially an effort to reestablish a legal regime that allows wealthy Americans to avoid paying federal taxes as they otherwise would? It, it would certainly have the effect of uh, allowing or subsidizing, in a sense, uh, high-tax states. It will certainly help higher-income taxpayers. Uh, the primary reason to repeal the state and local tax deduction is to eliminate the incentive for state and local governments to raise taxes. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Uh, well, uh, Walarski. Well, I want to re respond, if you let me, uh, on the, your last comment, I, I, I thought your presentation looked at your bill that you're talking refer to, and there's some very good things in there. I noticed you also used the 400,000 figure, which is going to be in mint soon, I guess. But um, I think your, your, your intentions are, are commendable. However, uh, I didn't know I was in the scheming business and, and dealing with uh, the salt. There are many uh, high-income states uh, that uh, utilize this. We know that people who are affluent um, may gain the majority of the money that will be available. Uh, you folks on the other side saw the low-hanging fruit. You used it to pay for your taxes. I will not say scheme. Uh, this is was your presentation. It was a legitimate presentation in, in 2017. Well, you used it to pay for some of it. At the, but my objection to the to the um, salt, which was for 156 years, Lincoln knew what he was doing to help the counties and the cities pay for other things that were necessary besides the war. And that's why we had this deduction up until. 2017 full full deduction. Uh, what we do with it is remains to be seen. But we have a very serious problem here of double taxation, and I don't care whether you're a zillionaire or we folks. Uh, it's double taxation that we got us how you look at it, and that was my approach to the salt and. Many other people have other reasons for it. In my district, it was devastating because it was a tax increase. But people didn't look at it that way. And of course, you didn't sell it that way. And if I were you, I wouldn't have sold it that way either. But that's what it, it came down to. And I'm trying to discuss for the last several years, since 2017, to, my, to folks what actually did happen. Because they're complaining to me. Because I'm their congressman. Regardless of whether I agreed with it or not is immaterial. You know that. We've been through this with a million issues. So uh, I'm willing to take a look at that legislation. And I think it has merit, what you're, what you're talking about. And uh, I'd ask you to take down the road another look at SALT. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being willing to look at that legislation. I appreciate it. And all I can say at this moment is I am so glad and grateful. I'm from the great state of Indiana, a red state, one of the most balanced, measured, uh, 
great ta great uh, stewards of our taxpayer money, and for that reason, um, I stand by the comments I made. Very grateful you're willing to look at it, but you know it does matter what states we live in. I'm glad I'm from the state of Indiana. Yeah, but every state is different, Ms. Walowski. Right. Every state is different. These. That's right, and that's why I chose to live in the great state of Indiana. <laughs> I mean, it's different than if you live in Indiana or Wyoming. You know, let's take the other extreme and you are in a high-tax state, which does not mean that the state is being run improperly. It doesn't mean that at all. If you've got to provide the goods and services for that state, whether it be schools, roads, depending upon the density of the population, we can't, the idea is do not double tax our citizens, period. I'm trying to stand by that. Thank you. And Looking that, forward to working with you on that bill. Okay. <laughs> you never know. Uh, the chair now recognizes Ms. Plaskett for five minutes. Thank you for being here. Time for questions. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'll step in here. Uh, we are coming to the close of this particular hearing. We have about 20 minutes left. I just wanted to say, uh, for those watching on Spotify, uh, we are going through all the different uh, offshore firms that were included in the report. I'm just sitting here, and I'll, I'll also give some reflections uh, on our next segment as well. I'm just sitting here kind of reflecting on all the different people I've met in the wealth space. And uh, it's amazing how many people have tried to hide information, right? And I mean, we're talking about people not even close to like these billionaires, right? They're, you know, I mean, they're multimillionaires and they've done really cool things, but you know, they've, they, they'll try to hide information from you. And um, there's only so long you can hide from the truth, right? And, you know, I think about it and maybe, maybe I was wrong to, uh, to assume it or want it. Most of the people who try to hide information about this type of um frequency, at least from me, of course, have looked like me. They've tried to hide information about wealth. And I have a feeling that some of the information that they're hiding, it's not even on this level. They, unfortunately, there is a growing group of people who don't want to see you do better than them. And so information becomes the best kept secret. What can they keep to them so then they can have an advantage over you? Or they just choose not to like you. You know, a lot of people have chosen for whatever reason, they're not going to like me because of my viewpoints or my stance on things or whatever it may be. And actually that ends up saving me a lot of time and energy. Um, but I will say this, I will say this. There's not, and I looked, I looked before I recorded this. There's not too many platforms that are showing you what 130 billionaires are doing, where up to $32 trillion are, and this information is at the, at the point of this hearing and the information I have so far. Of course, uh, consult your advisors. It appears to be legal. So who else is doing this? And if they are doing this, send it to me. Because most times when I'm trying to talk with people, they're all hiding the information. 
So then they can stand there. And the reason why they hide the information is they want to stand there at the end and have everybody point to them so then they can be the person. Does that make sense? Some people are in circles where everybody looks up to them. And if they were to really show the information, they would realize, well, no one would look up to me anymore. They would look past me. Right? And I'll be honest with you, I want you to look past me. Look past me. Look at look at the information that's in front of you. You don't have to look at me. Look at all the information. This would close the wealth gap. Yes, get the money. Acquire the assets. Do whatever you need to do legally to get the assets. But then how do you manage them? Well, if you're paying attention to this conversation, it's all within it. The gems are all within this conversation and the report that we'll put in show notes. If you want to know what to do, well, the scripture tells us the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. They know how to manage the money. And we could take a page out of their book and learn how to do it as well. Back to the hearing. Very much, Mr. Chairman. And thank you to our witnesses that are here. Uh, Professor Himmel, I was really took note of some of the information that you've given to the committee. And in particular, in your appendix, you have discussions about the um, victimization of jurisdictions that are in fact tax havens. And the detriment that occurs to economies uh, in those areas in which tax havens occur. I, I recognize part of this uh, being a representative of the Virgin Islands and living in the Caribbean. And while the Virgin Islands is not a tax haven, although some members may try and say it is because we try and have tax incentives for individuals to come and live there in the same way that my colleague sitting to my right, Mr. Doggett, living in Texas, his great state has tax incentives and we try to do the same. Uh, when you are a certain type of place, it's considered a tax haven. But one of the things I was hoping you could address is um, the detriment that occurs and may occur to places like South Dakota and others when they uh, are in fact tax havens? And why do you believe it is um, in truth that most of the attention come to places like the Cayman Islands and others and not to the states that are operating under these type of regimes as well? Yeah, I think you raise an important issue. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to offshore intermediaries, particularly offshore intermediaries in uh, Latin America, the Caribbean, uh, Africa, um, uh, places where the average uh, skin tone is darker uh, than in New York or Chicago. Uh, but um, most of this offshore wealth that comes to the United States is sloshing around in the large capital markets uh, of New York and Chicago. Um, I will say uh, in, in defense of South Dakota uh, that uh, the focus on South Dakota in the Pandora Papers also uh, distracts us from the fact that most of this money is ending up on the New York Stock Exchange uh, or NASDAQ uh, or other uh, US markets. Uh, so it is convenient for the United States as the world's 
uh, leading ultimate investment destination for offshore wealth to try to focus attention on and scapegoat intermediary countries. Uh, but the intermediary countries are largely replaceable uh, in this equation and were truly the essential part. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Burton, I share your concern as a moderate, probably by many of my colleagues on my side of the aisle, to be considered a conservative Democrat, to be concerned with um, the use of capitalism and free society and privacy rights as being really important. I can recall just last month speaking uh, in Portugal, uh, talking with the uh, European uh, Commission about data privacy and the concerns that America has with data privacy. Um, although you are expressing your concern about leaks, and I find it disturbing when personal information is leaked, um, putting that aside, I would, I would uh, have to uh, think that the Heritage Foundation does not agree with plutocrats and drug dealers and oligarchs from Russia utilizing American uh, loopholes to be able to hide ill-gotten gains and for us to have the fruit of poisonous activities in our country. What do you think would be the appropriate mechanism for us to keep that funds and that use uh, of those funds out of our country? First off, thank you for the question. It, there's no doubt that the Heritage Foundation wants to use appropriate law enforcement uh, methods to pursue predicate crimes. And, but the bottom line is, as it's structured right now, uh, FinCEN in particular, but also the Department of Justice and the IRS are giving you as policymakers almost no information with which to decide what's effective and what's not. And in my written testimony, I provide sort of a roadmap of how to get at that data. For I've been unfortunately doing this for a while, and for you wouldn't tell by your youthful yes. uh, look. Thank you. There. For 35 years, they've come up and told stories and anecdotes and said, "Trust us. This time it'll work." And well, it can has. you can you in verbal give us um, two or three? Um, data po uh, points that you, or suggestions that you think we should be taking up to try and deal with this? Yes, we should identify when, when there are millions uh, of SARS and CTRs and so on down the line. Uh, last I looked, it was 13 million. But the bottom line, we need to identify uh, which aspects of suspicious activity reports, because there's lots of different reasons why it could be deemed suspicious, uh, are giving rise to actual AML in successful investigations and prosecutions, independent of them discovering a predicate crime some other way. My guess is that a very high percentage, perhaps as high as 90 percentage of AML prosecutions, are really just add-on counts where they got the guy for dealing drugs or being a terrorist for utterly unrelated reasons. The other thing they haven't done anything is to, to determine which of these requirements imposed on smaller firms have done any good. And we heard a lot about FinCEN sharing information with the IRS today the, uh, under the CTR. The IRS already has much better beneficial ownership information than you're ever going to get from a CTR in a report on their K-1s and 1099 divs. The only gap in the IRS database is with respect to C, C corporations that don't pay dividends. 
Thank you. I don't I, know. I'd be glad to sit down with you and walk you I would you love to do that. that. I'm not sure if that keeps away uh, individuals' personal trust information. And no, it doesn't, but they are uh, required to file tax returns and report uh, income flows and assets. Thank you very much for your indulgence, Mr. Chair. Chairman, if you'll allow me, may I be able to respond? Would I be able to respond? Thank you. Um, I would like to just uh, note uh, to, to Mr. Burton's point that uh, FinCEN's ability to analyze this information is really predicate on the amount of funding it has. And despite the fact that the United States is the largest economy and the world's reserve currency, the current funding for the Financial Intelligence Unit of the United States currently has less than that of Australia. So I, I think it's really important to reiterate how important it is for, the, for Congress to fulfill its role about passing a budget um, that is appropriate for FinCEN to be able to analyze the data and provide decision-useful information for law enforcement. But I do want to make one additional point on the utility of this information. Um, there was a related pilot program that the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network stood up for the real estate industry, which collected beneficial ownership information. In that pilot program's first year, it connected beneficial, the, um, the specific cases uh, in which beneficial ownership information was reported to 30% of transactions that were also reported under SARS filings. So this is information that's useful to law enforcement. And I'll finally just note that FinCEN it has a really good track record of keeping this information safe. Uh, this is the nation's foremost body in being able to counter, uh, counter terrorism and to provide information for law enforcement. Uh, and there are uh, aspects in the bill that will make sure that this information is safe, including being able to uh, require this information to be accessed via physical portal. Um, there's training and certification, and uh, misuse of this information is a criminal. Thank you. Reclaiming and uh, appreciate that. And now I'd ask uh, Mr. Schmucker. You have five minutes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, this is sort of amazing to me. You have a leak of taxpayer data. Taxpayer information. Now, you, uh, Mr. Burton said it is written testimony. Financial and personal privacy is a co key component of life in a free society. Now, I don't know. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I can tell you that my constituents are very concerned about the privacy of their financial information. This is the oversight committee over the IRS, and there hasn't been one hearing on this. In fact, I have not heard objections from the Democrat members or from the chairman. You said today that you wrote a letter, but a hearing. Why should Congress not be looking into this data? Instead, in the, 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 the leak, the, the leak of information. Why aren't we looking into the leak? Instead, and I'll make another quote, there's ample evidence that the true progressive agenda is the functional, functional abolition of financial privacy so that political pressure may be brought to bear on businesses and individuals. And that's Mr. Burton's quote. Well, Instead so of a hearing, this is my time, this is my you? time. Can I finish and then sure. we'll be happy to discuss it. Instead right of a ahead. hearing about the leak, the information is being used for political purposes. Now, we don't know who did it, and I would not accuse any member of this committee, the chairman, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, from being part of the leak, but it sure is being used for political purposes, and that's getting damn close to complicitness in, 
in uh, releasing this information. I don't understand why the chairman thinks that a letter is sufficient and getting no answer. You're the chairman of the committee, and we're not willing to hold a hearing on an, on, on an illegal leak of, of, of private taxpayer data. The fact of the matter is, it plays into the Democrat narrative, which is absolutely false, that wealthy taxpayers cheat and that they don't pay enough in taxes, which is amazing because the second biggest item in this Build Back Better is to benefit Mr. Pascrell's wealthy taxpayers and wealthy uh, taxpayers in both coasts. It is unbelievable the hypocrisy that we see here, that we talk about Build Back Better uh, being for the poor taxpayers, but the second biggest item benefits millionaires. It's just unbelievable. And now it's a war on trusts, apparently. Well, I got to tell you that I don't need to tell whether the farmers and the small business owners in my district are legitimate, because they are. And they are using legal, a legal trust mechanism in the part of the farmers to ensure that they are making good decisions about allowing a taxpayer, a, a, a family farm to, to be passed from one generation to another, ensure that it is done well. So this is unbelievable what we are seeing happen today in this committee. Instead of doing a, a, a hearing on ProPublica and why that data was leaked, we're using another set of data that was achieved illegally as well. It is, it is unbelievable that this is what's happening right here in the committee that I'm part of and that Mr. Pacquarell, you're allowing that to happen. So let's step in right there. That's a great point by Mr. Smucker. I'm not sure if he has any agenda to saying that. He's basically saying, hey, most people that are using these services and doing all these things are just wealthy people who are trying to protect their assets and make sure it gets to where it needs to so it can be uh, given uh, to the next generation or the generation after that. So why is this information being leaked? What's the issue here? Is what I'm paraphrasing from Mr. Smucker. And I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm simply saying, well, the information was leaked. And Mr. Smucker is right. This is how the wealthy move. And here's my question. And I might, I might have asked this already, but I, I got to ask it again. Why aren't any black media companies now to give credit i looked at 10 different black media companies the largest of them all urban one didn't talk about the pandora papers not on their website right nothing was leaked to urban one or radio one um who was the other one the grio i believe they didn't, they didn't talk about it it was one other one essence right now, Black Enterprise did talk about it, but in their article, it's basically a copy and paste from other articles. There's no, to me, this would be the information, although it's le leaked and people are arguing, why is it out there? This is the information to close the wealth gap. Here it is right here, because it's not, the wealth gap is less about money and it's more about information. 
that's how you'll know if somebody's really for you or not. Are they willing to hand you information or are they going to hide it? If they hide information from you, they don't want to see you win. Mr. Smucker is coming on and saying, well, why, why are we going after these people? They, they seem to be doing, you know, most people are doing something legitimate with all this. If that's the case, Mr. Smucker, well, then why don't more people know about this? I'm not saying their financial information should have been leaked, but it seems like there's a group of people who know about it and a huge group of people who don't. And I'm saying, well, if you're a Black equity listener, I would take this episode and dissect it over and over and over again, go into the Pandora Papers, go into the Panama Papers, go into them. It's been leaked of how the wealthy are managing their wealth. It's there. It's, it's in plain sight. And most Black-owned media companies will not talk about this publicly. Why would they hide that from their own people? Why are we playing footsie with information? They'll tell you when somebody becomes a millionaire. They'll tell you about, oh, you know, this person acquired $2.6 million this or, you know, millionaire, millionaire. But they won't tell you about 130 billionaires and their financial information of how they're managing their wealth. We're, we have reached a point where we're getting a lot of surface level content. And you have to ask yourself, why? I respond. The problem is when we deal with unreality. I don't know what you're talking about. I've been very clear and public about what our motivations are here. And I have accused no one of doing wrong, except to say we need more transparency in this area. Just as we said 15 years ago, we needed more transparency on issues like the Cayman Islands, where people were dumping money so they had to pay taxes in this country. If that's involving privacy, I'm plead guilty. But that has nothing to do with privacy. It has if you're possibly breaking the law. And I would look at the history of your party. You want to make this partisan? Fine. Your party, when they gave 12 names out 12 years ago, when they were investigating the director of the IRS at that time when you succeeded in pushing her out, 12 people who did nothing wrong and they were never apologized to, your party did that. I'm telling you what we're looking for. We're seeing if there's transparency in this issue about states taking up the, the gauntlet for those people who don't want to be named as being owners of this money. That's what I'm doing. Can I respond, Mr. Chairman? Sure. I, I don't know about that. That was before well, my time. Do I, I don't, do I don't know about that. To me, this isn't a party issue. Uh, and maybe I'll just ask a question. This is not a party why, issue. Why are we not investigating w the data that was leaked? Why are we not calling it out for what it is? It's an illegal dump of taxpayer data. There are only a few people outside of the IRS who have access to that data. Why do we not care that this was done illegally? Why haven't we uh, held a hearing? And are you willing to hold a hearing on this? 
if I feel it's necessary, and when you become the chairman, you can make that decision. Oh, I, I know that. Good. I know that. I just think it's, it's absolutely critical that we hold a hearing to investigate this rather than using late leaked data for political purposes. Well, we it's unbelievable. Uh, we haven't established that yet. We haven't established what? That it's leaked. Oh, it's leaked. We haven't established that. Okay. Uh, it's certainly not a legal use of taxpayer data. Okay. Thank you for your comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And now I'd like to ask Mr. Docker for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for focusing our attention on these very disturbing revelations from the Pandora Papers. You know, I think what is unbelievable is that after the Panama Papers, this committee did nothing. Uh, after the Paradise Papers, the Congress as a whole did not act forcefully, and had it not been for the very long and detailed and laborious work by international investigative reporters, we would not even have the information that we have here today. Finally, this year, our Ways and Means Committee, working with the Biden administration, has made some limited progress in seeking to have large corporations and the wealthy few in our country pay a little more of their share, their fair share, of our taxes. And Secretary Yellen has taken bold action in achieving a global agreement on a corporate minimum tax. As a result, the incentives are reduced for multinationals to uh, race to the bottom and find the tax haven in which they pay not some taxes, but no taxes on their income. Uh, and in Build Back Better, overall, our proposed reforms to the international tax system will be constructive, particularly the requirement that I've sought for years through my no tax breaks for outsourcing bill, and that's the country by country reporting. Uh, this will reduce the shifting of, uh, tax, of profits into no tax and low tax tax havens. The Pandora Papers, uh, as uh, Professor Hemmel has noted, uh, have apparently made us the ultimate tax haven for foreigners to come here and hide their wealth uh, and avoid uh, coverage. Uh, in South Dakota and other places. Uh, this has been linked uh, not so much to privacy, but to fraud, bribery, and human right abuses. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Ms. Hanacek, as called for by another piece of legislation that I have advocated for about a decade, uh, the Stop Tax Haven Abuse Act, which I've worked with FACT on, uh, we've proposed in that bill that any money laundering provisions be extended to cover the formation agents of these trust companies uh, who uh, help foreigners. And there appears to be no interest today from our Republican colleagues, even for foreigners that cheat through these trusts. But how would inclusion of the type of provision that I've had that FACT has supported for a decade in the Stop Tax Haven Abuse Act for trust, how would that change and what impact would it have uh, concerning those who launder their ill-gotten gains right here in America? 
Thank you very much, Congressman, for the question and for your years of commitment to financial transparency. Um, I would say this just to provide evidence for why this issue matters. There was a uh, study conducted by Brigham Young University a few years back in which uh, the researchers posed as various entities that would normally cause red flags uh, for uh, normal you know, financial institutions with customer due diligence requirements, terrorist organizations and the like. And they approached uh, corporate formation agents. Uh, one, uh, one researcher posing as a terrorist organization uh, encountered a corporate formation agent that said, I couldn't possibly represent you for less than $5,000 a month. And so it's critically important the work that you're doing here uh, in Congress uh, and uh, that the Pandora Papers uh, reveal, uh, you know, really underscore the mandate to tackle. Um, additionally, that's why it's important that the Biden administration has uh, reiterated or announced its interest in tackling corporate uh, formation agents, uh, corporate service providers, and trust providers as part of its anti-money laundering uh, framework uh, moving forward. So uh, with the bill that you've, pa uh, that you've written, uh, Congressman, as well as efforts like the Enablers Act from your colleagues. We're really excited to see uh, Congress work with the administration to actually get this across the finish line. Thank you very much. Uh, and let me ask Professor uh, Himmel, I appreciate your testimony and that of Professor Moran, uh, but Professor Himmel, uh, you have talked about the desirability of us doing this in a cooperative way with other uh, leading OECD countries. Uh, and certainly the success that we had with the minimum tax, the global minimum tax, indicates that global cooperation is important. The only concern I have about that is the same concern that was, or the same objection that some of these multinationals w said, well, global minimum tax might be acceptable, but we can't go first. And I think you addressed this in one of your earlier comments. Would you describe the advantages of global cooperation, but again make clear that lack of global cooperation is no reason why we shouldn't act to, to prevent the United States from being the leading place that these foreign elites like to launder their money. Yeah, I think we wouldn't be first. Uh, other countries do tax portfolio interest. Uh, other countries do tax the equity income uh, of foreigners. Uh, and I'll also add that U.S. capital markets are attractive for reasons other than our tax provisions. It's because we have the most dynamic corporations in the world. And I think foreigners would continue to have an incentive to invest in U.S. corporations, even if they were going to pay some withholding tax along the way. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And now we're going to turn to Mr. Horsford for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate you holding this critically important hearing on the ICIJ's uh, Pandora Papers. I also want to thank our witnesses for participating. Like many of my colleagues, I'm appalled by the Pandora Papers findings that the United States was actually one of the global hubs of international tax evasion. It is ridiculous that the tax code allows these individuals to legally negate any tax obligations through convoluted financial instruments and increasingly obscure beneficiaries. My constituents in Nevada's 4th District deserve better. And with all due respect to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, we are not red states and blue states. We are the United States of America, as uh, former President Barack Obama uh, once noted. And I really get tired of that framing by the other side. 
why don't we focus on federal tax policy that is fair and equitable and ensures that those who are not paying their fair share do so? The first issue I'd like to highlight is how these secretive financial tools make tax avoidance much easier. At a time where the wealthiest corporations and individuals have seen record profits and the richest 1% hold more wealth than the middle 60% of American households, we must level the playing field. My constituents are hardworking men and women who don't have the resources to hire a team of lawyers or establish obscure shell corporations. As such, many of them end up paying a higher effective tax rate than the mega-rich highlighted in these papers. These hidden assets cost the United States government tens of billions of dollars a year in tax revenue, and it is unacceptable that those who have benefited the most from our society refuse to reinvest in their fellow citizens. Professor Moran, you discuss a race to the bottom amongst tax havens to attract investment through ever greater concessions. And you note dire consequences for localities that become tax havens. In light of this, what actions can we take as the federal government to limit U.S. states' participations in this, rate, in this race? It's very important that whatever rules apply, that they apply in such a way that there's not that it doesn't encourage competition between the states. So you can see this, for example, in uh, um, tax incentives, where states give one incentive, and then another state gives another incentive, and then another state gives another incentive, and it spirals and it spirals and it spirals. We've already seen that in the tax incentive part of this uh, problem. And we're going to see it in the tax haven part as well. And of course, you in Nevada are right at the forefront of this. So it's, it's whatever you do, it's important to always consider, will this stop competition between the states or will it encourage competition between the states? Thank you. Additionally, I want to discuss how the findings by the ICIJ give us a glimpse into how deeply secretive financial instruments have become. It's ludicrous that we have allowed vast fortunes to grow untaxed and oftentimes unclaimed by any actual beneficiaries. The wealthy and well-connected have managed to not only hide the true value of their riches from the public, a shameful act on its own, but through shell corporations and trust, they have been able to dodge financial regulators and the IRS as well. I agree with Ms. Hanacek's uh, testimony that the current anonymity with which uh, most legal entities may form or invest in the United States facilitates complex tax evasion schemes. And I appreciate your recommendations on gatekeeper industries. However, I worry that the adaptability of the financial system will provide another workaround similar to individuals using trust instead of shell corporations. So, Ms. Hanacek, why do you believe that regulating these in-between entities will actually increase transparency as opposed to simply necessitate the creation of even more convoluted financial instruments? Thank you very much for the question, Congressman. 
Uh, it's essential that the United States, uh, via its law enforcement and tax authorities, has an understanding of who's behind anonymous legal entities, uh, whether that's uh, anonymous shell corporations, trusts, or others. And you rightly point out that the trust industry has contorted itself a hundred different ways to try to evade the scrutiny of new uh, regulations that come online. I would say that one of the most important things that can be done to address this, um, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has already taken the first step toward in terms of how the database uh, uh, collecting beneficial ownership information will be, uh, will be uh, not just constructed, but the type of information it will collect. Uh, the flexibility uh, of the definition um, as, the, uh, as Vincent has defined it for a reporting company is critical to make sure that we're not just regulating one entity today that will contour to the next entity, the next. So working with uh, the administration to make sure that's robustly carried out would be critical for Congress to follow through with. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your leadership. We are the United States of America. We need a tax policy that reflects that in a more fair and just way. I yield back. Thank you for your questions. All right, we're uh, approaching the last uh, four to five minutes of this hearing. I'll give my final thoughts here and then I'll let the hearing close us out uh, for this episode. I just looked up, because you know, now they're talking about a war on trust. And when they're talking about trust, they're talking about the entity of trust. Uh, the global trust and foundations market size uh, is expected to grow from $142.97 billion to $154 billion uh, in uh, 2022, right? So at the time of this report, it was at 142 billion in size. Now we're at 154 billion in size, and probably growing. The reason why I think this is important is, I think it's important if this is the way that wealth is managed. We need to be paying attention to this, and anybody who's not talking about this is having low-level conversations. No matter what they tell you, if you're not talking about this level of thinking around wealth, we're doing a disservice to really our entire culture, our ancestors, to everybody. You know, we always talk about how our ancestors died so we can have a right to vote. And maybe that's true, right? They die for a lot of reasons, but they live for a lot of reasons as well. There's an opportunity to close the racial wealth gap. There's an opportunity to have wealth equity. The information has been leaked. God has handed it to you. My only question is, are you going to do something about it? Littered through this entire episode, are many of the answers to questions you didn't even know to ask. The hearing is talking about how people are taking advantage of the system and many people are just playing the system that is in front of them and they have this information that's been passed down from generation to generation. They're not thinking anything is wrong. This is what their parents taught them. And so now, here I am, handing this information over to you and you can decide what to do with this. This could be an episode that completely changes your life 
Or some people will never even press play. But I can sleep well at night knowing that I did my part. I handed you access to 130 billionaires, $32 trillion worth of assets. And most of this information, check for your advisors, appears to be legal based off of the information provided to us. So if that is true, I can't think of anyone else who's given you this much, this much access than right here on Black Equity Podcast and really through the glory of God. I'll tell you how this episode came to me. I was going to do an episode about uh, the racial wealth gap. And so I'm sitting there on YouTube and I wanted to listen to a, a hearing on the racial wealth gap. And I found a few hearings and I looked at some of them and I said, okay, I can do something with this. But I realized most of the people in the racial wealth gap hearings, they didn't have any answers. It was just a lot of questions. Like, what do we do? And why hasn't this happened or what? But then I kept scrolling down and I found this video that has less than 3,000 views. And then there's one other video. It's the same hearing, but it's by PBS. And that has less than 15,000 views. So as far as I can tell, of course, you know, it's probably been on TV too. But as far as YouTube is concerned, there's less than 20,000 people who have viewed this hearing. And most of the videos online about Pandora papers are all about kind of demonizing the people in it. And then it came to me. I was sitting there and I said, oh, the wealth, the, the, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. So you got to look beyond what the headlines are telling you. The headlines are going to tell you this is evil. Don't do any of this. These people are abusing the system and all this other stuff. But the majority of people are just using the system that is right there in front of them. But the the news is saying, no, you don't do this. They're doing it the wrong way. Stay doing what you've been doing. And if you look at the majority of the content that seems to be flooded, they're all telling you to play the other game. I mean, they want you to make millions and millions, but then they want you to be taxed heavy. Right? They don't want you to be creative with how you play the wealth game. It's one thing to make the money, but you got to be able to keep it. So I was sitting there and I played the video and I looked down. I said, well, when this episode comes out, it's going to be on October 3rd. And I looked at I looked at the uh, Pandora document, and what do you know? It came out on October 3rd of 2021. Let's see if it pulls up for those watching on Spotify. Look at this. The Pandora documents were published. Does anybody see that? Where did it go? 
It published on October 3rd. And I said, that's God right there. I'm pulling it up now for those who didn't see the date. Look at it. I was sitting there preparing an episode on the racial wealth gap. I was going to listen to a hearing on it. And none of the hearings had enough substance for me. I scrolled down and I saw a hearing about the Pandora Papers. And I said, well, what is that? I didn't remember this even happening last year. You got to remember, over the last couple of years, it's all been about uh, the pandemic and pandemic. All this happened during the pandemic. You remember how the billionaires and billionaires are making more and more money during the pandemic and wealth was shifting and everything was moving? And then these papers came out. So I looked down, I looked at the hearing, and I just kind of clicked through it. And I said, oh, my goodness. This is what we need to look into. And I said, what day am I releasing this episode? Oh, October 3rd. It's exactly a year now since this has been out. And then it allowed me to see, well, what's been going on for a year? How many podcasts are about the Pandora Papers? How many Black-owned media companies are talking about this? How many Black podcasts are talking about this? And I noticed they're all playing the old game. They're giving us access to old information that we've all already knew. There's a whole new game in town. And the Pandora Papers really, really make you realize what it is. I know we're not the biggest podcast in the world. But God has given us access to something different. Go look. Go look on your podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast. How many black podcasts are talking about this? How many black-owned media companies are talking about this in depth? Even black enterprises talk about it in depth. And I just started realizing most things that are propped up are propped up for the old system or for the system that doesn't give us access to anything that will get us closer to the closing this waste, uh, racial wealth gap. This right here gets us closer. You just have to apply it. I thank you for tuning in today for, I believe, to be a next level conversation. I just, I really hope and pray that you don't get caught up in the old frequency. There's a new frequency in town. And I want you to have access to it. I'm not hiding anything from you. It's all right here in front of us. I could have found the Pandora Papers and just ran off. But then I wouldn't be me. This needs to be discussed. Especially on the one year anniversary of the largest leak of financial information. Not just financial information. Of the wealthy, of the wealthy, of the wealthy. It's all sitting here for you to go through and decide for yourself. How will you leverage this for your own portfolios, for the people around you, for your circles? Access to information is the key. And if they're not telling you about something, it's because they don't want to see you win. Depp, Mr. Horsford, there was a fitting uh, conclusion to our hearings today. I want to thank the witnesses we're doing a spectacular job. That's everybody. 
and thank you for being here for your time. I think that you have assisted in building a groundswell for oversight as well as transparency. Uh, I can assure you I don't take lightly when I send letters to agencies and I don't get an answer. I don't care whether the administration is Democrat or whatever. And that's, that's my stand, that's been my history. Uh, I ask unanimous uh, consent to enter into record a letter I sent to Governor Nome with questions to be answered for the record without objection so ordered. Before closing, I would like to highlight the excellent pamphlet prepared by the Joint Committee on Taxation, analyzing the tax treatment of trusts and recommending additional reporting requirements to aid in the enforcement of our tax laws. In addition, I'd like to commend the administration uh, for its report entitled U.S. Strategy on Countering Corruption, which was released earlier this week, and we should all read it, Democrats and Republicans. Many of the targets and tactics are reflected in the themes of this hearing. I look forward to working with President Biden implementing this strategy. And with that, let me say this. If there's nothing, if there are things that we could have touched on today and we didn't have the time to do it, would you please write to me about this? I think it's very, regardless of where your stance is, which we take everybody's viewpoints into consideration. We want to protect privacy. There's no two ways about it. But, you know, that's, that's a two-way street. And the point of the matter is, to have oversight, we need to understand we need information. That doesn't mean just go get it. But it means that you have to have a solid, solid foundation. I want to thank the committee, of both Democrats and Republicans. It's a big issue. And I said to the uh, ranking member, my good friend Mr. Kelly, a few moments ago, this is like a volcano. This is how the Cayman Islands discuss, started discussion we never completed. And I hope this is not the case with those domestic things that are cropping up in the states, now only five or six, but that's going to grow also, no question about it. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. Have a great holiday, and keep your families close. I would like to thank the witnesses joined us today. Please be advised that members have two weeks to submit written state questions to be answered later in writing. Those questions and your answers will be made part of the formal hearing record. With that, this committee stands adjourned. Thank you. He said, go and read it. I went and read it. It says, the wealth of the wicked is later for the righteous, and a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You ain't leaving nothing to your grandchildren right now, and you're born again. You're just barely living off your retirement. You are useless. You, you, you failed God. Your grandkids have nothing from you that will last. They don't want your clothing. That's not inheritance. And here you are singing, worshiping, and you disobey God. You're not leaving an inheritance to your children's children. And I said, God, what's wrong? He said, read it again. And I read it again. It says, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. And a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And I never saw it before until that day. God said, see? First of all, he says, who did I tell you have the wealth? 
I said, the wicked. He says, good. He says, how do you know that I know they have it? I said, I don't know. I was ashamed. He says, I gave it to them. He said, have you ever wondered why I gave it to them? Because I only give resources to those who can manage. Management is so serious to God that he'd rather give it to the wicked to protect it from you holy mismanagers. And do you know what we do? We lazy people, we try to claim it out of their hand. That's why we're broke. I claim. Claim what? You've been claiming for the last five years and you still broke. And the wicked still get it. Why? Because you don't get it by claiming. You get it by attracting it through management.